Hello, my name is Lucy Ripova, and I'm the founder and host of Think with Lucy. I started this podcast to discuss interesting topics with people who have different viewpoints. Why? In the age of social media, our news feeds are creating echo chambers that confirm our bias, making us less tolerant of other opinions. And this increases social and political polarization and leads to extremism. Seeing different perspectives helps you to understand things in a different light and helps us come together. It strengthens the democratic foundations of our country. Let's highlight the gray area that is often overlooked. Let's show nuance. Let's think. Today, I will be talking about populism uh, with Guida Rowe, a first year student of modern history and politics at the London School of Economics, and Guillermo Gonzalez, a ma- master's student of political economy of Europe, focusing on populism and his dissertation, also at the London School of Economics. We will cover the definition of populism and how it's evolved over time and in different regions, examples of populist leaders, why is populism popular, and what are the dangers associated with populist ideas. Uh, Guida believes that populism can provide opportunities for democracy, whereas Guillermo thinks populism poses a threat to democracy. So let's start by defining populism. I think there's been a lot of confusion uh, amongst people as to what populism actually means. I think it's a term that's used um, a lot by media, but people are confused as to what the definition is. So if you look at the official definition from Oxford Languages, it's a political approach that strives to appeal to ordinary people who feel that their concerns are disregarded by established elite groups, right? So it's it's not an ideology based off of this definition. It's an approach that appeals to the masses, right? To the working class people who are not happy with the current state of affairs and who are not happy with the government who is made of elites. Would you think this definition is accurate? I think it's it's accurate in some senses. So... Um, I think it's assertion that it's a, a concept of working class grievances or the grievance of the people. I think that is it. That that is quite plausible. Um, he, it mentions that it's not an ideology. I think it certainly can be. It, it's an ism, in the same way that um, fascism is an ideology. I'm not linking the two. Um, and in the same way that uh, many other isms are considered ideologies, uh, socialism, for example. Um, I think. One way, in, in one way, it's not a, a, a uniting ideology, is because there are such distinct differences between uh, left and right-wing populism, uh, which I think we'll, we'll be discussing today. But the uniting thing between them is the idea of disaffectedness and, and I think, in many cases, genuine grievances that people have, um, and the proposition of somebody coming along and saying, "Well, it's the elite and it's us versus them," them is very much the case. Um, whereas you don't link it to fascism, I believe it is completely related in the sense that it is an evolution from the idea. Nowadays, uh, obviously, making a difference between um, what populism was in its very early stages in the 20th century, beginnings of it, uh, where democracy itself was born in populism since it was a populist idea in its prime. Um, nowadays, uh, I think the, the meaning has changed completely and this is shown in the academic field because there's huge uh, grievances and controversy on how to define populism. I believe that the most accurate 
definition of uh, populism would be Mod's one, uh, which is a theme-centered ideology that considers society to be ultimately separated into two homogenous and antagonistic groups, the pure people versus the corrupted elite, and which argues that politics should be an expression of the volonté générale, um, pardon my French, general will of the people. So basically what you're, I'm trying to get with this is that nowadays it moved away from being an approach, as it was in its very early stages, to become an ideology in itself. By just creating, depending, obviously, it's beyond left or right, um, just designating what the corrupted elite is and designated its own pure people to achieve this majority and get into power. And then obviously, uh, well, in my, my opinion as well, it poses a threat to democracy in itself because it, it just transforms what the concept of liberal democracy, which we have nowadays, into something else, more of an illiberal democracy. How would you define pure people and the ruling elite in your definition? Uh, within my definition, of course, uh, well, it's not mine, it's Moody's. I, I say that, I just agree with him. I believe that, um, well, it depends, exactly. That's why this ideology can be fit into many different examples, you know? So one example of it, and even though this is fascism, which I would say it would be like the transition from populism into, or from the very early stages of populism into the definition right now, where Hitler, for instance, called the pure people the Aryan race, which was a set of traits that really, well, didn't really represent anything, and then posed the corrupted elite as the Jewish. Nowadays, you can find it even in many cases. In, in my home country, for instance, Vox uh, does claim that the Spanish, uh, the pure Spanish or the good Spanish are those who don't, uh, get into different types of lobbies uh, and they put the corrupted elite as the progressive awoken lobbies of, you know, LGTB, which obviously is factually incorrect. But they, they, they claim that all of the Spanish people that defend this type of lobbies or ideas are the corrupted elite and also make reference to the uh, globalism um, conspiracy theory or the globalist uh, where they say that there's a huge corrupted elite, uh, rich, awoken one that controls uh, all of politics and they make reference to the uh, Bloomberg uh, conference of, uh, of politics, you know. So obviously there's always, there's always up to interpretation and to different leaders to choose what could be the evil within society, quote unquote. So like same for instance, in, um, even though it's kind of communist in itself, but as well in South America, um, Maduro, you know, claims that uh, the United States or the corrupted capitalist elites are the ones uh, intervening into the sovereignty of of, um, of Venezuela. And that in itself is not a really communist, I would say, archetype in the sense that, you know, sovereignty was never as important for communists as, as it was like the internationalist approach. So to a certain extent, this shows that it's just beyond left and right. It's just kind of a uh, populism is a new ideology, uh, ideology yeah. I think on, on your point about um, characterising populism as, as resulting in fascism, um, I would be hesitant to draw links between the two. I think concerning Hitler's um, categorization of the Jews as being the elite, the corrupt elite, and then the Aryan race, the, the German nationals, being the suppressed um, majority, I, I think there <laughs> certainly are similarities. But I, I don't think this always applies. So in the case of Hitler, um, it wasn't necessarily the case that the Jews were the elite. Yes, they did control uh, much of the banking sector, but they weren't the elite. I think wh wh when you look at today, um, there is certainly a case to be made that obviously we always have rich and poor. We always have powerful and unpowerful people. But in the case of today, there is a genuine grievance uh, and a genuine socioeconomic problem here. 
And I think um, many people uh, disregard populism as fascist, as racist. And I'm, I'm not saying that it is, it's not, because there are elements of it which definitely are racist. Um, it's to, you know, the, the, the saying which I adhere to regarding Brexit is that all racists voted Brexit, but no, not all Brexiteers are racist. Not all Brexiteers wanted uh, to kick out the immigrants. But equally, when it comes back to the elite, um, I, I think there is, a, there is definitely a difference between Hitler's betrayal of, of the Jews, uh, which include a lot of violence, and perhaps more modern-day examples of populists on the left and right characterising um, bankers, for example, um, as being uh, in charge, which in many cases is, is the truth. And the, I think the perception of people is very important. So whether or not it's true or not, the perception of people matters. And if they feel aggrieved and if they can describe the, the, the elite, then I think for them that's the most important thing. Um, and it's from their perspective which we need, need to examine this this debate. Um, I just wanted to correct you in one quick thing. Um, I don't think that um, populism derives in fascism necessarily. I'm actually just making a reference how fascism was another form of populism before and now it has changed. Okay. So whereas... Hitler, for instance, or Mussolini got into power, uh, some of them like Hitler, uh, even though there were a lot of coercions and, and other un liberal or undemocratic ways of achieving power, uh, they did it democratically and then they, so they changed the constitution, they completely abolished it and they, they were claiming against democracy, saying it was corrupted. Whereas populism today does, uh, does not suspend democracy but changes the meaning of it. So even though I, w I wanted to speak about it later and I probably will develop more on it, uh, Urbinati's definition of it, of when populism gets into power, is that they change different, uh, let's say, constitutional articles to change the rules of the game and freeze the majority that they had to achieve power so that it remains as constant, so not in a period of time. But, but sorry, am I right in saying that um, part of your argument is also that... Uh populism develops into fascism and that once in power populists actively seek a more authoritarian rule um i don't say that it develops to fascism i said fascism is something which happened it's like more of a neo-fascism it's another approach where instead of openly suspending democracy they just change it in such a way that they claim it's still democratic even though it's not but they do i do agree that it does lead to a more authoritarian approach and for instance the best example of this is hungary where orban mm. when when he achieved power the first thing he did with his, with his ample majority was change 22 articles in the constitution to ensure that it was more difficult to overthrow him but don't all democracies and governments do that to an extent this comes back to the uh, the, the definition given earlier I think that actually any democracy can be characterised as populist in the sense that any party wants to appeal to the masses and and wants to change the law subtly in a way that benefits them. We saw, for example, that upon upon becoming leader of the uh, Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, on his re-election, sorry, he introduced uh, a bunch of new rules concerning um, who could vote and it, it, for example, decreased the cost of, of being able to join the Labour Party. And you saw a huge influx of youngest university students who were paying this, I think it was like £2 um, to, to join, and therefore they voted with him for him, sorry, and that's part of the momentum movement. And then equally, on the other side of the spectrum, on the right, you know, seeing um, the Fixed Term Parliament Act, for example, can also be seen of, of a government implementing law to their favour, but I wouldn't necessarily say that they were, they're, they're populist. I'd say that is just the nature of governance.
To be fair as well, I think we're kind of confusing the terms with being like populist or being charismatic in power as well. Um, mm. Because obviously there's the populist rhetoric that many use. But um, Corvin, for instance, uh, while it is true that he would um, characterize certain corrupted elites, which could be just seen as a, you know, a mere cleavage, which is accepted and followed in any liberal democracy, uh, it is also... A, kind of that he did not make reference to any pure people within the British. They just said the many, not, not the few, I guess, but that's just speaking about the majority, not really and speaking about the, the common people of, of, the, of the UK. I wouldn't really say that that could be put as a pure people in that sense, you know, or, or um, you know, as in like the awoken elites kind of thingy. So I would say I would say definitely that we we have to like also kind of be careful with what we define as a populist approach or a populist ideology mm. in that sense. Just just one final point on how we should define populism. Um, I think that many um, thinkers and politicians and journalists and such, when they're talking about it, they they characterize it by describing and giving examples of it. And I think it's quite an easy trap to fall into, and I do it myself. But it is also helpful because, you know, people ask, well, what is populism? And in many ways, it's easiest to just give examples of populism. So you might say, oh, I don't know, um, elements of the Trump movement regarding um, Mexico or, or China or, you know, industry and, and the idea of the elite um, metropole. Yeah. I think we, we just agreed that the definition of populism is extremely broad. Yeah. You know, in Venezuela, for example, uh, Maduro thinks that the elite is the U.S., Bernie Sanders in the States thinks that the elite is the rich and powerful, like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. Trump thinks that the elites are the institutions, right? So every leader can shape the definition of populism to their narrative. And in a way, it doesn't matter where you stand on the political spectrum. You can be completely on the left or completely on the right and still be called a populist. Yeah, but fundamentally, uh, there is there are commonalities even yeah. between left and right, in who they define as the elite, both Sanders and Trump label elements of the institutions of the banks as part of the elite. So in that sense, there is a similarity. And and I would actually go as far as to say that actually they are correct in identifying some flaw in the system. So Trump there. was against banks? That's what you're he, saying? Uh, well, <laughs> It doesn't seem to was, me he yeah. lowered corporate tax rates, That's which true. benefited so banks. So was, was he himself against banks? I suspect not. But the image he presented to the Republican voters was that he was against the corporations. So, yeah. Yeah. Trying to, to appeal to more of the yeah. uh, lower... But his actions weren't really reflective of what they, he was saying. They, they were and they weren't. Um, they weren't reflective of his of his campaign because, yeah, like you say, he introduced lower corporate taxes. But they were in the sense that he also uh, invested into more industrial jobs, which is what many of the working class in the, in the Rust Belt states, for example, wanted. Uh, and importantly, and I think we'll get onto this in a minute, is that it's about image. And if you're able, regardless of what you're doing, if you're able to present something as working for somebody and, and um, persuade them that, that you're doing right by them, then uh, they'll, they'll support you. And for instance, a really good example of this is Five Star Movement in, in Italy, where even though they were in, in government with another populist party, which was more far right, they, they would follow kind of a similar um, line of, of argument. And whenever they got into power, they just became as centrist as any other liberal mainstream party. Mm -hmm. So, You know, all populists are trying to appeal to the masses. But also, all politicians are trying to appeal to the masses, right? They want to get elected. They need majority support. So in a way, we could say that all politicians are populists because they're structuring their messaging in a way to appeal to the most people possible. 
so they can get elected. Actually, I believe that this is a cause of populism in itself as well. And it is just that whenever a populist party shows up, it becomes really charismatic. Uh, there's a lot of voters that support that, which are tired of the mainstream parties of the right and the left. So then those mainstream parties are in, in turn forced to to follow also a populist rhetoric in order to get into power. And that is mainly one of the main problems, since there's a competition. If, if this party has to do it, then I have to show that I am as radical, quote-unquote, or as populist as they are in order to take votes away from them. And uh, coming back to what you said before, it's true, like Donald Trump tried to also give this kind of perspective that he was also an advocate of the interest of the lower classes. And that is mainly one of the main also kind of traits that you can see in populism mm -hmm. nowadays, regardless whether you're left-wing or right-wing, you try to say that they're kind of against the class system, the, the, the traditional cleavages that come with class. They, they claim that uh, they are, um, they, fo they follow a general will. It doesn't matter if you're lower class, if you're poor, if you're rich, if you're of a certain ethnicity or not, you are the savior of them. It's kind of this personalist approach or, or ideology and that's mainly why Donald Trump even though defending the interest mainly of the of the big corporations he was trying to give this image that he was also with the lower class and with other other let's say cleavages that do, did not enter into his definition of what policy should look like. Mm. I mean I, I think the similarities between normal politicians and so-called populists I, I think that there are many but I think unless we completely rethink our thinking of there's a lot, lot of alliteration. If we, unless we completely uh, rethink, then democracy—that's that's what it is. It is simply, a, a simply appealing to the masses. I think that any form of democracy, because obviously you need to win votes. It's majoritarian by nature. You need to appeal and be charismatic. Um, Boris Johnson, I wouldn't say uh, he's quite a, a moderate liberal or libertarian in the, in the traditional sense, not in the in the new uh, interpretation. And yet he's charismatic, and people love him for that. He's and, funny. Well, he is funny, yeah. But it's by being funny, yes, he seems like a bumbling fool. But equally, he seems more human. Um, he seems more approachable rather than the traditional, very disconnected politician. Perhaps like Keir Starmer, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and that may be why, uh, even though Boris Johnson's ratings are falling, uh, Keir Starmer hasn't, the Labour Party hasn't actually seen an increase. Um, and Jeremy Corbyn... Um, Many people loved the uh, the perceived approachability of him. He was uh, very down to earth in many in many aspects, and Boris Johnson, I, I think, is is able. And there are some politicians, but very few who are able to do this. Uh, but I think he's one of them who are able to not only convey um, some sort of, I suppose, authority. You know, people need to believe that these people are going to get get stuff done. But he's also able to to seem human and, and approachable, and I think that actually part of the the, the difference and what these what these poli uh, populists want to appeal to is that they want to address the uh, this idea of disconnectedness and how traditional politicians and institutions are separate from the people, us and they, and actually these populists they almost present themselves as a link between the two. They will advocate on behalf of the people and achieve what the people want, which is fundamentally majoritarian and general will, which is the whole point of democracy. So unless we revert to some form of um, perhaps enlightened rule or, or bordering authoritarian or oligarchy, I think we're stuck with this. Now, should people um, be able to all vote? This is obviously a, a question which is as dated 
you know, many centuries. And so, That's democracy itself. I well, would exactly. Say, yeah. yeah, exactly. Should, you know, Aristotle, Plato, should, should uh, the people um, have the right to vote and should they be able to determine policy? And I think that, um, well, actually, I'm not quite sure what I think about this, I'll be honest. But I think if we are going to accept that people have the equal right to vote, they're therefore fully justified in voting for their own personal interests. And if this is expelling immigrants, then if the majority wills it, then whether you like it or not, um, then same with Brexit, whether you like it or not is the will of the majority. Yeah, but also we have to take into account that, um, you know, there's a, like a big difference, you know, mm. in in trying to claim that these populist leaders believe there's a general will that covers everything, every interest of every person in the society they, they defend. Um, you can also kind of use this as a way of saying, look, I'm not going to be the corrupted elite that believes there's classes and that they're lying to you, but I'm be, I'm one of you, you know, mm. I'm coming, I don't, like, they try to kind of give away this idea that they're not uneducated, but I would say, like, they are simple, you know, they yes. are simple, yeah. they are, well, leaders that try to claim that they're the, the, the vast majority of, of the decisions they will take once they are in power are going to be decisions that will affect people's day, you know, day by yeah, day. Yeah, I mean, N- N- Nigel Farage, for example, uh, there were many press pictures um, of him with, you know, always pint in hand in, in, in a local pub. He actually conducted many of his constituency meetings in pubs in, in, in Kent, which is where, I, where, where, where I'm from. And he, he, was, he was always dotting about and he wanted to be relatable. And by being relatable, again, it's the idea of not being disconnected from people and being able to engage with, with people's um, desires. And even even in Spain, for instance, also giving an example of my homeland, um, Abascal, Santiago Abascal, he's the leader of Vox. Mm. Uh, he, once the elections came, he would go, you know, to fields to help the farmers and like to kind of, um, you know, mm. kind to show like, I'm not going to be one of these politicians that's going to sit behind the chair. I'm actually going to participate. I'm going to help you guys every day. And the thing is that you can actually draw comparisons with, for instance, Mussolini, which would do exactly the same thing, go mm. to help the farmers. Although in, the in fairness, mo- most politicians do engage in that. At one at some level i mean D- david cameron for example and it's it's all about political image isn't it yeah the even things like the, what what you wear is so important so when he was visiting i think it was the building of x amount of new council homes he didn't wear a tie he just wore a casual jacket shirt and chinos uh, the next day he would then go to, in a full business suit somewhere and then the next i think he was helping on uh, a construction site and he was wearing a hard hat and a high vis and it's all about image isn't it like, like yeah, you're saying image but it's not square. necessarily a populist trait. It's a it's it's a trait by all politicians because democracy is about appealing to the people. I mean, it is a populist trait in the sense that not in the sense that if a politician does this, they are necessarily populist. In the sense that they know that populists have succeeded in gaining votes based on this, so they will do it as well as a way of competing uh, with the populist parties. Oh, so I, I think I this is know. just one of one example more of how. Uh, populism is transforming society into not the content of what policy should look like, but more the way this content is presented. So more about the discourse than mm. the content. And that is one of the reasons why I believe it, so, it poses so a threat to democracy. And I'm right in saying that you're sort of characterizing populists as shaping how our democracy works, like like influencing other parties uh, on yeah, how they to do. conduct politics. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they do to an extent, but equally, I think it's the other way around as well. And I think that they, they arose at the same time you know, going back even to the, to the Boston Tea Party um, yeah. and that movement in America. Um, and I think that they are, they're very much interlinked in trying to appeal to people. Even an authoritarian ruler has to appeal to the people. They need to be able to suppress 
revolts. You know, they um, authoritarian rulers, what they'll want to do is, with the least expenditure, stay in power. So whether that is by appeasing people, by um, you know introducing some policies which they like and benefit from, or it's using by brute force and suppression, military suppression. But in many cases, it's it's a mixture of the two. And actually, I think by appeasing people, um, you're going to be more successful in the long run. Well, as well, you can also kind of see it in the sense that um, all of the, the elites, so to speak, are are not not as charismatic as they as the populist leaders are, or at least that's what the populist leaders try to define. So then by carrying on these things, it's kind of attacking the elite in the first place. Also within parliament, you can see how the the, the populist leaders humiliate uh, the elites, for instance, and, and, and well, the elite, quote-unquote, the liberal, <laughs> the liberal mainstream um, could, could politicians. Could sort of define yeah, what yeah, you yeah. mean by the elites, I, I, perhaps, and, well, and also sort of elaborate on, on your interpretation of the elite in different countries. In, in, well, within uh, the parliament, uh, mm. what I meant is whenever a populist leader defines the elites, uh, not necessarily I agree with them, but they also speak that mainstream parties, that, that regardless of whether they are like centre-left or centre-right, defend the interest of those elites. So they are seen as part of the elites by the populist, or that, that's also the image they try to give. So within parliament, you, you might as well see um, leaders within it not speaking out content of policy, like this policy might be good or bad for society as a whole, but you can see them also humiliating them, saying, uh, maybe coming out and saying, um, so how does this really help someone who is trying to uh, find enough money every day to eat? But is that really populist? Um, I, 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 would I, claim don't, it I don't is, see yes. how, how that's necessarily populist. I, I think that is just the nature of politics. It, it is populist because it's obviously something that everyone would agree with, but not necessarily the, the way they want to do it. So it's kind of they defend an outcome. They defend an outcome that I think no one would be against it. And I can give you an example. Whenever they speak about the general will, if a politician says we want national security for the country, um, I don't think anyone's going to be against it. But what do you mean by national security? Because maybe that populist party finds that one of the main threats to national security is immigration, so we have to cut immigration off. But that doesn't necessarily affect uh, others' uh, ideas on what national security is. It could be another country. It could be, it could be even like, I don't know, like international terrorists, whatever. So obviously, when they, when they kind of define what is the general will, they define it in words that everyone agrees with. Like, no one is against better healthcare. No one is against better national security. And with healthcare, for instance, many populists say, like, we want better healthcare, but we believe private is better than public. And that necessarily is, for instance, not my, my idea of what uh, better healthcare looks like. So obviously, by trying to give these messages in parliament, they make people follow them. Like, I agree with what he says, and he's speaking plainly in comparison to, I don't know, maybe mainstream politicians who are talking numbers and percentages. Uh, but then at the end of the day, they do things that maybe even those people who voted in the first place, don't really agree. Like, they might be, I'm in favor of national security, but not in favor of cutting immigration off because, you know what, I don't know, my, that person's uh, boyfriend is an immigrant in itself and then gets affected by it. So, obviously, it's kind of misleading the people into voting for them for things that I think everyone would agree on, but obviously, how to get there. So, it's kind of this battle between means versus ends in the sense that you always give, the populists always give ends that no one will actually oppose to sell this idea that they are the real saviors of the people. And then when they get into politics, into power, they change the constitution so it's less transparent, more authoritarian, and then they can do any kind of policy changes they want, claiming in their discourse that it will lead to that outcome which they sold before the elections. Mm, do, do you have confidence then in the... Because I, I would say that our, our structural systems and governments 
are quite uh, stable and secure and actually be very difficult. There are, I think there are enough checks and balances to prevent a populist, so-called populist party or figure from taking control. I think it'd be very difficult to do that. I don't agree. And uh, as you can see, Poland and Hungary, those are the main two examples nowadays. Yeah, and well, I, 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 I think that there's debate as to whether they're actually democracies. Um, I mean, perhaps I, I don't mean to shift the ballpark too much and speak in semantics, but they're quite corrupt by nature anyway. Uh, but I think, take for example, the US and the UK and France and Germany, they're quite stable systems, I'd say. Well, yeah, but they're majoritarian. Obviously, here we kind of see the, the cleavage between majoritarian mm. electoral systems and proportional ones. But I have to say as well that within um, the proportional ones or within the, like those examples that I put, now with voter dissatisfaction, there's a huge voter dissatisfaction because they're tired of the mainstream politics. With Since the arrival of neoliberalism, all even center-left parties are kind of approaching this equality of opportunity, rather the uh, historically uh, equality of outcome that the left used to defend. So at the end of the day, many voters are dissatisfied by saying nothing really changes with those parties, even though it might, but they might not see it this way. And, and that affects the voter turnout, which is closely linked to populism. Now it's giving populism an opportunity to rise in the sense of we are not like them, we are actually going to do meaningful change. And that has, I think, is one of the main factors that influenced the arrival of Orban in Hungary or Duda in Poland. Could you please clarify the... Uh, I don't mean to be the interviewer. I'm just intrigued. Could, would you mind clarifying like the, the link between um, voter turnout and, and populism? Because the voter turnout is actually quite low. Like Brexit, which is a very high-stakes election, with I think 76% of the voting population, which isn't actually well, that high. But you can also see within the European Union, which has given rise to a lot of populists nowadays in the European Parliament, the voter turnout is 46%, now 51%, finally over the 50% threshold. But I could clearly link it by, uh, linking, link it by saying that um, the voter turnout in itself now is, be is becoming like, it's decreasing, it's declining. And I think it's mainly because of the reason I told you. Obviously, there might be many reasons and also different contextual reasons for, for uh, from country to country. But I would say that those people that don't vote see that it's meaningless. And I, I know many of my colleagues, even in university, that feel like this way. They feel uh, whatever I vote, nothing really changes. So why am I going to vote in the first place? I feel it costs me more to go vote than the benefits it's actually going to provide to me. So I would say that that gives definitely a, a window of opportunity to populist parties by saying, I am completely different to them. What I'm going to do, they will. They don't have the courage to do. You know, they have this rhetoric. So vote for me and I will actually make a change. So if, for instance, the uh, voters turnout is 70%, uh, there's 30% which are clearly dissatisfied with the system in general. So even when they seem these populist parties coming over, they're like, you know, I, I might as well just try. And this clearly uh, is happening a lot because even in those countries, like for instance, Hungary and Poland, you do see a voter turnout which goes really low. And then in the last elections, it went really high because maybe those there was a higher percentage of those um, citizens within those countries that voted for those populist parties in, in that sense. What, what I find interesting though is that, that many people uh, praise high voter turnout, right? Um, so on that basis, then I'll actually say that populism is good because it's motivating people to vote and people feel it they feel they have a sense of freedom and power and perhaps that's a slightly sinister because maybe they don't but by voting their demonstration that actually they do have faith in the system whereas before like you said i think this is very much the case before they feel there's no point voting but by a populist figure coming along now, I suppose it's a different question as to whether these populist figures are actually effective in enacting what they say. But 
they are motivating and encouraging people to get involved in politics uh, and, and take a stance. This uh, comes to another debate, which is is uh, high turnout necessary for the, the well-functioning of democracy. And yep. it's also really, con, con, you know, it's a, there's a lot of controversy within mm. the academic field on this as well. But I would say it's not necessarily a good thing in the sense that they vote for parties that really don't defend the classic ideals of democracy or the classic basis of democracy. They vote for them because they don't see a whole, they didn't go to vote in the first place because they didn't see that democracy right now was working for them or that's what they believe. But then obviously someone, by with misleading them with information, they, they forced them to vote, uh, not force them to vote, but encourage them to vote for a party that maybe did not represent their interest. But since they're not, uh, um, let's say, concerned with, with what other mainstream parties say, then they will just vote for anything that comes. And obviously once a citizen votes, or at least uh, this is the utopic uh, view on it, when, whenever it comes to voting, a citizen takes all of the information they have gathered during the, mainly during the previous weeks to the election, because obviously there's a lot of debates, there's a lot of campaigning by all the political parties. So they get all of the information they see on the table. And then they say, okay, then I, I believe that within this information that I have, I want to vote for this party or this party or this other party. Problem is that uh, the vast majority of populist parties do, af do affect the elections with misinformation and fact uh, and fake news. Especially, I would I would argue the Donald Trump is one of the best examples for this. So, and it gets to a point where it's not only factually incorrect what they say, which can be proven easily with some research online, but they kind of delegitimize the other news institutions by saying these institutions are lying because they're part of the corrupted elite and they don't want you to see the real truth. Therefore, whatever you read online is not going to be true. Only what I say is going to be true. And that's the rhetoric the populace comes. So obviously, with that information in the table, those people will vote for this party claiming that, uh, you know, with this information, I believe that the best option is them. However, let, let's say that it's, it's misleading them in the sense that they don't actually even try to inform themselves because you know what, the other people are lying. Everyone in this world is lying except this party who has awoken me to vote for them. And this is mainly one of the main problems in democracy because if a citizen doesn't have the real information in order to know what's best for their interest or the interest of, of what they believe is the interest for all of the population, then they're, they're voting uh, based on lies. And I think that is degenerating the main meaning of democracy in that sense. Uh, obviously, there's this counter-argument that, you know, like, it can be proven that the mainstream media is lying to us because there's, uh, you know, let's say, left-wing, right-wing biases. But, like, even if you get, I don't know what is called mainstream, even though I don't really like the term of mainstream, but if you get all of those media newspapers, those who have a slight inclination towards the right and those who have a slight inclination towards the left, and you, like, you know, compare the information they say on a, on a specific event, you might kind of get like a close, let's say, illustration of what the phenomenon is speaking about. But uh, with those newspapers, it's just completely different. They, they normally don't even cite sources, and, and those newspapers are mainly owned by political parties, directly or indirectly. In, in Spain, for instance, there's uh, Vox, obviously, the far-right populist party, and then there's um, OK Diario, which is one of the most important newspapers in defending what, what Vox says. And they kind of claim that. They kind of uh, say, we have like a source, we won't cite this source, we won't say what it is, where we got it from, but this source claims this information, which leads you to vote for parties like Vox. I think we've agreed on two conditions that define populists. One is you have to appeal to the masses, right? You have to be representing the real people and have effective messaging to do that. 
Uh, the second one is you have to be anti-establishment. You have to be against the elites and different populist leaders define elites differently. And I think the third one, which we haven't talked about yet, was you have to be anti-pluralist, right? You have to be delegitimizing the opposition. And um, how you define the real people is, in fact, your supporters. So you're not representing the whole population. You're, in fact, representing just the people that mm. are going to vote for you. But if your if your voters are the majority, this comes back to the fundamental question, if your voters are the majority, then to hell with it. Uh, you have the majority. Uh, I think as long as you're not Im implementing tyranny of the majority, uh, as long as the, the rights, the freedoms of the, the minority are respected, I think that rule by the majority is the most straightforward solution. And how can we ensure that populism doesn't lead to tyranny of the majority if they yeah. change the constitution to change those, let's say, uh, checks and balances that protect the interest yeah. and the rights of the minorities? And the vast majority of populist examples we can put, they have done that, really. Uh, now in Poland, for instance, uh, they've, they've claimed that they've changed the the abortion law or the LGTB adopting law and in Poland, they those are rights which is fundamental for every person, like regardless of your uh, sex, gender, well, that's the same thing, sorry. Uh, the ideology, you can still adopt a child. You know, you have the, the let's say, the, the access to adopting a child, but now they're claiming that, um, you know, there might be problems with parents that that have same-sex marriage and therefore it should it could affect the kids obviously that's a, a, a rhetoric that dudas has used in poland a lot but in, in the case of eastern europe and poland that's also motivated by religion right it's it's not just um the populists the people the, the the culture there is very different to what we have here and whilst i i support abortion I don't think, I mean, take, for example, the current uh, sanctions imposed on Poland or the threat of sanctions by the EU. I think that's actually quite backward um, in the sense that we can't expect to impose what are, frankly, Western values um, on them because I, I don't think there's necessarily an objective morality. Uh, and if there is an objective morality, how can we be sure it's ours? So in the case of, 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 of the Poland abortion laws, I think, again, if the population wills it, then... I, yeah, I mean, you're, you're right in the sense that if, if they are genuinely changing the constitution in order to, to push through their thing... Which then, is what populism yes. does when they well, get into power. The vast majority no, no, of all the I, examples... I, 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 don't, I don't think all populists do that. Even, even Donald Trump, even though he didn't directly change the constitution, he didn't have the, enough powers to do it because the checks and balances in the United States were quite strong. They did the, the legitimize the results in certain places of the elections. They said, um, now with Biden, um, the elections were they were fraudulent. And I should have won, but, uh, you know, that's what he says. I should have won, but I didn't because there, there are some corrupted elites changing the votes because they prefer Biden in power. This is kind of also, you know, it gives this precedent that you need to change the constitution because the constitution right now is a uh, servant of the corrupted elites. And that's the main but, rhetoric. But, but, but perhaps you it is, You can argue perhaps, anything. Per, per, yeah. But perhaps it is. You know, I think there are... And this links into, I think, a future conversation we're going to be having about, um, you know, what is the what is the reason for the for, for, for populism? Why do people support it as well? And I think there are actually fundamental issues, and actually there are cases, and it's difficult to determine what where, where these are, but I think there are cases where the institution actually genuinely is, is is corrupt, and populists are actually correct to call it out. You've got to bear in mind that that populists and all politicians have interests when they're making policy decisions uh, and for the direction of their party, obviously there are lots of conflicting interests, um, but ultimately money money motivates a lot of things. 
And, you know, I think to a large extent, the policies of government uh, are made always with a hand on the wallet, right? That it's always motivated by that. Now, I think that figures like like Trump, they're also corrupt in that sense. I'm not sure whether we'll, always, we'll ever have a completely, you know, morally perfect a politician or, or any person for that matter. Um, but equally, it is, point, it is important to point out that I think that the the changing of these constitutions can sometimes be justified because they they are frankly perhaps outdated. You know, liberal democracy to this point has failed. People are still in poverty. Why is well, sorry? Why are the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer? Now that term gets thrown around a lot, but there is actually evidence to support it. Um, take the the states for example. The, the top one percent uh, have now have a greater share of the of the the pie, shall we say, than they, than they did uh, fifty years ago. Um, so on that basis, the current institutions are failing. And if the democracy, which I think it is, if the aim of democracy is to improve society, which I think is definitely definitely the, the, the reason that we all want to improve society, um, then it's failing. And therefore, alternatives, which may or may not include um, changing the constitution, are, are important. I think, obviously, it should be done carefully. Take Brexit, for example. Uh, the idea of change is very appealing. You know, if something's not working, change it. But actually, I think that's a fairly reasonable assumption. If something isn't uh, working, fix it, rather than just continuing down the same route, which people clearly are, are dissatisfied with. And I think we should embrace change more. Where I think it gets more of a grey zone is who and why they're making these changes. Are they really to benefit the people? Take, for example, Poland, you know, is, is that genuinely to enact the people's will or is it actually some personal agenda? Um, and also, like you said, I, and I completely agree, we do need to ensure there are proper checks and balances and the opportunity for opposition parties to rise and present their own side of the side of the argument. I mean, yeah, but as well, and coming back, obviously you said that there must be change, and I agree, constitutions have to be changed. There, some of them, including the Spanish one, are really outdated in many things, like, for instance, the Catalan vote, um, you know, uh, or the rebellion, charges of rebellion, which is kind of, you know. But um, at the same time, obviously that can be done within a liberal democracy. That's why a liberal democracy allows for constitutions to be changed in order to improve that. The problem is when like as you said, an agent or a populist leader uses that in their advantage to ensure their stay in power, even even to a certain extent uh, within locally in, in my region of Spain, Valencia, the Conservative Party acting in a really populist way. I wouldn't consider them populist to that extent, but I would say that they acted in a really populist way when they saw that the Valencian nationalists were coming to power. They raised, they changed the, the Valencian voting system but to is, raise... The, is, is that populist or is that just authoritarian? Uh, like, but I think that populism is really related to this because they wanted to ensure, they wanted to ensure that uh, their party is the one that defends that majority, like the majority of the people, and they did so by just making it more difficult for small parties to rise. So a, they, they, they raised the threshold and they, they made it so their their majority would be it would benefit big parties like this one and they mm. would um obviously this is not a really good example since i don't really consider consider the conservatives in spain populist but i'm saying this was a really like a populist way of doing it and mm. many parties do it like that they raise the threshold so that they they get all the parties uh, you know to freeze that majority and it's urbanati's urbinati's sorry urbinati's um theory of populism in power is that once they achieve that majority required to get into power then they want to freeze it 
they want to freeze it in a way that it doesn't, it does not like a liberal democracy concept where every four years there's elections and maybe the majority turns the tide to another to another side or another uh, political party in the opposition. So here what they do is they try to freeze it. They try to, they try to change the constitution so that that majority stays like stronger than the minority of votes. And therefore they do it even to a certain extent and then it's really difficult for those parties to actually leave power, even though maybe, um, because obviously they changed the electoral system. And as you can see, even in, in the United States, uh, Donald Trump, even though the electoral system granted him the majority in terms of popular vote, they got less than 50%. So technically, but that, that, Hillary that, Clinton... But that was the nature of the democracy in America. That wasn't necessarily... No, no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not claiming that. I'm just yeah. saying that this is an example. You can change the electoral, the electoral rules so yeah. that even though you don't count with a majority of the popular vote, you do count with a majority according to the I, rules yeah, of the game. I, I agree, you know, gerrymandering and all, but... Trump didn't change the rules. No, uh, yeah. no I'm just saying, yeah, I'm, just, I'm just giving an example how the yeah. electoral, uh, um, you know, um, system can actually benefit minorities rather than, than uh, majorities in this sense. So what, what I'm trying to say is that mm, yes, uh, when populists get I into agree. power, they try to change the electoral system so that it benefits their majority, so that it's easier for them to keep power. So it's kind of mm. authoritarian strays. And they, they obviously do that by delegitimizing any part of the constitution that basically promotes checks and balances. I, I, I agree that that definitely can happen. I think where we diverge in opinion is that it seems to me that you assert that that happens in all populist movements. I don't think that is an intrinsic quality or characteristic of populism. I don't think it always transcends into this authoritarian-esque rule. I think that actually, because of the nature of political systems, usually a populist um, party will be ousted by another populist party before they are able to enact these these things and actually it's it's, it's uh, populism in my eyes is the purest form of competition in democracy in what way well i think by by motivating people to vote for you by enacting or sorry to promise that you enact policies uh, and bear in mind of course that at the next election if you don't enact them or people aren't satisfied that you've enacted them enough they can vote you out by having um, populist parties competing in the same way that free marketeers would say that, you know, businesses competing is good. I think that um, by having by having populists who, who compete together, that will result in the best policies, which the majority will, will favour. But wouldn't that be also what liberal parties do? They promise to do something and then whenever yeah. they get into power, if they fail to do those changes that they promise, then in the next elections, they will probably like, the, the voters will punish the incumbent leader mm. and they will vote yeah, for someone else. I think, I think that, that, that's a fair point, but I think... I think one of the qualities of populism perhaps is it's seen as more radical as, a, as an ideology. It's seen as it's less status quo. You know, I think that uh, take Farage and compare him to, to Boris Johnson, both supported Brexit. They're both actually interesting parts of the elite in the sense that they're both quite wealthy. Both went to private school. Uh, Farage's funder, Jeff Banks, is extremely wealthy and he was instrumental in the Brexit campaign for funding that. But they have those similarities. But the the difference is that uh, Farage is seen as more radical than than Johnson and and the Conservatives. And I think that's also a, maybe perhaps something we should add to the definition of populism. It is populists are willing to enact constitutional fundamental change, or at least they say they are, to change the system in order to benefit the masses. Whereas Conservatives, for example relatively living on the same status quo. I think perhaps it's shifted now because uh, shocks, you know, uh, I'd say I suppose 
black swan events really like covid or the financial crisis or the second world war and such they have changed uh, the constitution quite a bit and we're actually seeing um traditional parties becoming more willing to change things radically and perhaps that's the influence of populism but i think actually more likely it's just the realities of politics um so yeah um to be fair also um you're kind of arguing that the mainstream or liberal parties won't be able to promote change or they really don't and i have to say and then coming back to the first example you said one of the main reasons why you um, defend populist parties is because they do try to tackle the income inequality mm. that is uh, existing and i agree with you that there's a huge income inequality and that the top um, like the top decile honestly like owns almost all of the capital of each society. However, there's countries, and I put the example of um, Norway or Sweden, where even though they don't have populist governments in that way, or not really, I would not say, maybe they have populist approaches in terms of discourse, but not really populist. They don't really claim that they're a corrupted elite or pure people. And they are one of the countries that are tackling the best way in the best way um, inequality, which is... Uh, well, I think, just to clarify, I, I wouldn't... I'm not in support of populist parties. I'm more in support, or sorry, no, my, my belief is that it is understandable why people support populist parties. And I do think that democracy can learn things from them. Uh, regarding Norway and the Nordic countries, yes, they are praised for promoting you know, you know, promoting equality. But I think there are actually some quite populist figures there. I, they're not in government, but they are certainly influencing government. You know, Farage wasn't in government, I think it's fair to say if it weren't for him, we wouldn't have had Brexit. And a populist doesn't necessarily need to be in government. It is, it is them mobilising the masses, uh, almost like a, a petition, a lobby. And we actually, for context, we met uh, earlier in the week, didn't we, uh, to have, have, have a chat. Uh, and we, we actually drew up on the fact that actually if the policies in Norway, such as taxation, were to be applied here, it wouldn't necessarily work here as it does there. So, yeah. so you defend populist parties in the sense that they influence in terms of parliamentary debate but you you defend them as long as they don't get into power <laughs> no i i think that <laughs> I, I i would defend them to the point at which they don't impede on democratic values which are you know free speech the rights to to vote and things like that so if they if they do enact constitutional change which is is degradating to those fundamental core values of democracy, then of course I would I would completely withdraw my my support and I would con I would condemn condemn that party. But, but we but but we can't generalize all populist parties um, as as authoritarian. Uh, I would not say that they they obviously they try to not look authoritarian because they are representing basically democracy or at at, at least uh, at the very least uh, its own concept of democracy but i would say that uh, once they get into power they might do changes to the constitution where they limit free speech claiming it is to defend free speech for instance you know like but then, uh, but then i suppose it comes down to to what extent can populist parties really mislead people i think the idea of misinformation is thrown about a lot uh, and the idea of social media for example influencing people and i think it does play a part but I think ultimately we still have free agency. 
And I think it would actually be negative for us to say that we can be swayed so easily by populist figures. I think ultimately people see the light of day. But, uh, you know, the conspiracy theories that many, the vast majority mm. of populist parties defend, they, they don't have any factual evidence they can base it on. It's only like rumors or fake news in that way. So to a certain extent, even, even obviously it depends on what cleavages, because mm. there's also this, there's two types of populist parties in the, in the sense there's those who get an existing phenomenon, which it is proven factually that happens. And then they claim that certain things, which cannot be as factual, are the ones causing it. Like inequality, there's many, especially left-wing uh, populist parties that claim, oh, inequality happens because of this, this or this. It might or might it might or might not be true, but at the same sense, like, it's something that does exist. And then there's populist parties, which create a problem that really doesn't exist, you know, well, to try I, to achieve power. I, I, I disagree with that. I think that populist parties don't create a problem. They latch onto a problem. Um, I would urge anyone listening to read Eatwell and Goodwin's book and they look at how um, there are potentially very important grievances that people have. And I, I, I think you're right in the sense that populists do certainly trump up charges of um, there being issues. Uh, take, for example, immigration in America. I think whilst many people do have genuine concern about it, and I think there is to an extent, I think there's an idea and a case to be made against homogenising national culture still should still be maintained that's not me saying we shouldn't shouldn't allow immigrants because they can also aid that uh, national culture but um if people feel and i think that this is partly the case if people feel they are taking their jobs that that's the typical assertion then that's one thing but if they're saying that also they they feel that their own culture is impeded and they can't live side by side with immigrants which i think is a shame because i think that you know cultural integration is very important but equally, if, if again, if that's the people's will, it's it's sadly, it's their country. I think we're getting on a slightly off topic, well, I am, about, about immigration. But um, going back to, um, I suppose, why populist parties are so successful, it is because people do have an actual issue and a genuine grievance. Uh, well, can I actually just put an example of this? And it's just... Um for instance, a part of democracy, I think that everyone would argue would be every every person in society uh, considered as a citizen to vote. And um, obviously, like there's consti like the constitutional articles, which are more difficult to change, is just to ensure a fair uh, game within democracy. But for instance, if you put an example, um, Switzerland, uh, within their direct democracy, they made a referendum whether women should vote, which obviously is a big part of society, and they voted against. To a certain extent, obviously, then it's when we draw the line between democracy and um, the tyranny of the majority, in the sense that um, if a majority wants to, I don't know, hypothetical example, murder a part of the population, is that democratic? Well, not really, because in order for democracy to happen, everyone must have their chance to at least exercise their vote or like to delegate their decision-making power to someone else in representative democracies. So obviously the thing is populist parties, they might say, oh, um, which is obviously the question we're going to lead now to on whether politics shapes citizens or citizens shape politics. But I would say that if a within my argument that I believe that politics shapes citizens more than citizens shapes politics. I, I would say the other way around. I think, I think importantly, it is what people perceive to be an issue. If people perceive, whether it is or not, if people perceive economic or immigration topics or issues to be a, a, an issue, then that shifts the lens of politics. If people, if, the, if there is a, a, an actual uh, movement for people um, 
to believe to, to believe something. So say, so take Brexit, for example, anti-EU sentiment. If that is a genuine grievance, that will then be transferred into politics. And it is actually people influencing politics. Farage didn't come and suddenly make, you know, 30 million people believe that the EU was, was not, not a good idea. That uh, grievance was already there. And what he simply did was was latch onto it and promote it further. He didn't actually create that sentiment. You, you, you can't fundamentally create someone's own opinion for them. Well, to a certain extent, you can always speak about the, the obviously, the, the Brexit in itself. Uh, there were arguments in favour of it, and the vast majority of populist parties like or, or politicians like Farage were actually claiming those benefits. But at no point I saw the populist agreeing also on the other side of the balance or at least debating on it on whether there was going to be a scarcity of of many products nowadays in the yeah, UK but, that was but, not spoken but, before but the all, elections. But all politicians, um, whether you consider them populist or not, are going to have their own slant on an argument. Um, no politician is going to, in a debate, say, actually, my argument's a bit flawed because of X, Y and Z. No matter what politician they are, they're going to give their own slant. And it's important that people know that. And so they are not misled. Or, or for instance, as well, like if those politicians, like obviously it goes back to the main argument that we we're having before mm. on that a citizen uh, votes based on the information they have. So if political parties sell the information or like give this information, which might not be correct, and that's the only thing that those uh, citizens consume, that information that they consume, then obviously uh, at the time of voting, they're going to vote for what the information suggests to do. And a good example is, in the, for instance, the Daily Show that they would do interviews. I don't remember the name of the... Mm. Of the Jordan Clapper. Jordan Clapper. That he would go to Trump rallies and ask them questions regarding why they voted for Trump. And many of them would either claim conspiracy theories, which were... Yeah, yeah, I mean, bear, bear in mind, that doesn't represent all Trump No, voters. of course not. I'm just <laughs> giving an example. I think it, it, it's a pretty accurate representation of Trump voters. Really? Yeah. I, I don't think so. I, I would not necessarily agree with that. I would say that, obviously, uh, I would say a majority, definitely a majority. Really? Uh, e even a majority of Trump voters? I, I would I would claim a majority. Not all of them, theories. obviously, but uh, uh, clearly a majority. But it's, it's just in that way, like, if, if, if uh, fake news get all over the, the citizens. And then, especially like the populist approach, which is not only to spread those fake news, but also to delegitimize uh, mainstream media so that they cannot counter back. So in the sense of like, if, if a mainstream the newspaper says this is factually incorrect, if uh, then uh, populist parties have said, well, those, those um, I don't know, newspapers are owned by, and for instance, in Spain, the argument that all of the newspapers are owned by George Soros, and therefore he influences the information we get. And the only way then, according to the, the populist approach within Spain, is that you should consume the free media, which is not bought or not financed by George Soros, but at the same time, it is uh, financed by supporters of, of, of Vox in general, and sometimes even politicians of Vox that finance those newspapers. So what I'm trying to say here is that at the end of the day, if not only you spread, let's say, misinformation or not even f fake news, because there's also some, like, let's say, misleading uh, arguments. Yeah, I mean, also define fake news. What One person's yeah. uh, truth is another person's e Exactly, life. yeah. But, like, sometimes, like, there's misleading truths, you know? There's, there's uh, you know... You mean facts, well, yeah, yeah facts, sorry. I, I think we can establish, like, there are core facts, aren't there? Like, there are core facts. and, so, like, and I, I, I can say that this, you know, table is a table, for example. Yeah, that, that is but, a fact. That but, is but, not but, subject but, to opinion. But exactly. But when it comes to 
more subject to things like politics or what we should do with politics or what policy direction we should, we should take is very much well, subjective. For instance, what, one thing which is fake news that is uh, the, how the, there was a fraudulent election in the United States. Um, mm. I believe mm. that is not a subject to opinion at all. It's a fact. And they were selling it as if it was a fact on the opposite side, that there was clearly, let's say, a fraudulent election. So obviously this is misleading. Uh, if I heard that, if I got like news that there was fraudulent election and then a politician says, I am the only one speaking about this, then I might be, yeah, of course, maybe there is a conspiracy after all. So I'm, I'm sure that many citizens uh, within the United States thought about this when they were voting. And, and especially as well, there's this study, um, don't remember who did it, but I was doing it for uh, one of my essays uh, in, in, well, back in Essex for my uh, undergrad. But they were saying that within elections, in the vast majority of the world, the number of fake news uh, increment two weeks before the elections. So when there's no time to really prove if those fake news are real or not, and many scandals come out before the elections. Obviously, there's, there's uh, the argument that, yeah, of course, before the election, elections in campaigning, they're going to try and find out scandals which are true to, to take them out, but also fake news. Take advantage of this. You know, there, there's in two weeks, in two weeks, there's not real time to actually sort out a trial or to find out whether that information is uh, f real or not. And then politicians can use that to their advantage. So, especially populist leaders. So I would say, honestly, like at the end of the day, um, if, if there's a lot of misleading facts and fake news, then politics is shaping the citizens' minds in order to voting for what they want to vote. So in that sense, I, I would argue that it is bigger in the sense that also taking into account that citizens, the vast majority of, of citizens are not really interested in politics or economics in the first sense. Like it's not that they don't know about it, it's just that maybe they prefer in their leisure time uh, if they're not working in politics or in area of, of their of a field of work where they need economics, uh, then they probably won't research that on their free time. I'm sure that there's people there are. Obviously, I'm not generalizing for everyone, but I'm saying the vast majority uh, don't really focus into politics or get interested into politics until the elections time, two weeks before. So yes. that's where they gather all the information before voting. So I would say that obviously that gives an advantage to populist parties in misleading the citizens because they know that uh, if they can prove sometimes they're, you know... Um, let's Pre say, premise. common paranoia, then mm. obviously they're going to receive votes. So at the end of the day, this is a big problem because these parties are not trying to play fair. They're trying to just get into power in order to change democracy uh, or democratic values into freezing that majority in, in a more authoritarian approach. And as I said before, I, don't, I, don't, I believe that like populism nowadays could be defined as a neo-fascism. And the only difference is that fascism obviously claimed against democracy. It said democracy is bad and we're going to like plainly, uh, square and pl uh, plain and square, they would say before the elections, if we get into power, we're going to abolish democracy. We're going to put, you know, the vast majority, that it's a system that doesn't work, it's corrupted, parties don't work. So that's, that's what they would claim. Whereas the populists nowadays, they claim that they're democratic. They claim that whatever, they're, they're going to make changes to make democracy more democratic. And to do so, they have to abolish liberal democracy in, in that sense, or like make it really difficult for a fair election to take place. And I would say examples of this, regardless of whether they claim they're on the left side of the spectrum or the right side of the spectrum, would be Venezuela, would be Poland, would be Hungary, would be even Russia to a certain extent, although it's really clear for Russia that recently he just, uh, Putin just uh, dissolved the parliament and changed the constitution by himself, you know. So to a certain extent, uh, that's a more radical approach, but it is clearly populist. Even China, to a certain extent as well, but China is not a democracy openly. They say it's a popular democracy, but it's also part of the populist discourse. So I would say at the end of the day, as a summary, that um, 
You know, citizens are shaped by what politicians tell them before the elections, and they vote based on who has conveyed their side better. And you're like, yeah, that's mainly democracy. But if, if someone conveys their side with a really populist rhetoric and with misleading facts, then obviously those are not playing fairly. So, so perhaps um, we could agree that what maybe distinguishes a, a normal politician from a populist is a populist is more likely or more willing to use you know, misleading information campaigns. But, um, I mean, regarding whether the, the citizen influences the, sorry, the, the government or vice versa, I, I still maintain, I think the, the citizen does play a key role. Yes, they are influenced 100%. But equally, um, I think, you know, perhaps why it's, this is why it's so important that people are more politically educated. Now, how do we politically educate someone without biasing them? Now, in the institutions and, um, like, university schools they are generally of the left-wing nature not always but i think it's a reasonable um yeah it's reasonable to think about i agree um and i'm not sure whether how you know to what extent lecturers for example influence students but the 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 culture at many universities is left-wing now i sound a bit like trump here because he also said the same thing um when he called out um the elite and his definition of the elite here was young, educated, metropolitan, which we, uh, in his definition, would would fit into. And and by us being all content with ourselves, there is somebody uh, in the opposite end of the country who has a very different life to us, who doesn't, who we can't relate to, um, who would who would want us to to not have any any say and in politics. That's a break point as well. Um... There was another leader as well who claimed that the intellectuals were the, the corrupted elite, and that was Franco yeah. in yeah. Spain. Franco, <laughs> so, and, and, and also Mao and Stalin and, 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 yeah, and, and many definitely. others. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I would say definitely, like we can see a lot of similarities between uh, fascism and populism. And in the sense, at the end of the day, in my opinion and to my own argument, is that they basically do the same thing, but they just use different different, let's say, approaches to do it. Uh, while fascism would claim that democracy wouldn't work and they would and they would openly and bluntly just abolish it uh, populism nowadays does the same type of things they just ensure that they stay in power for as much as they can however they don't they they use this concept of democracy that's why it's so dangerous because obviously democracy has a positive connotation it has always have like democracy means mm. uh, which also comes from uh, populism in the sense like i have in in a, in, a, in a democracy i have my own right to express my opinion and to choose or to vote for the policy this let's say direction that i want uh, so obviously, uh, it's, that, that's why it's so dangerous for democracy if people use this by claiming my concept of democracy is more democratic. That is a, mainly a problem because if it does abolish if you're the majority, if you're the majority, yeah, then but I don't th- that's justified. Within democracy, it's, I don't think it's even about uh, whenever you're choosing uh, in a democracy, you must ensure that everyone has a right to speak. As mm. long as there's always this division between corrupted elite and pure people and in they, in that they claim that that corrupted elite is not part of the real people, then that is, that is excluding a part of democracy in itself. Even if it was, it was true that, that there was a corrupted elite, which I, I, it's another debate, and I think that we don't necessarily have to get into there. But if, even if there was, so take into account their own argument, by excluding them, you are violating the main concept of democracy, which is that everyone has the chance to, to decide. So by saying that that corrupted elite should be up, like away from democracy, should be not allowed to vote, not allowed to decide, and be taken away once and for all, then that's excluding essentially a part of, of, of the population from voting and from deciding. So it's, it's violating democracy in, in its very meaning. 
So obviously, to a certain extent, I would say that uh, that uh, populism undermines democracy more than faith. I, I I think it can undermine democracy. To yeah, I, I, again, I don't think it always does. But yeah, how do we make sure that people are not misled? Because as we said, especially you know in the U.S., supporters of Trump are not very well educated. Uh, I think most of them um, do not have higher education. And they're very easy to be influenced by, you know, tweets. Um, some of Trump's tweets are, you know, law and order, let's build the wall, let's fight immigration. And I think it's very hard for them to think it through and understand what does he mean by that, right? What is the effect of what he said on Twitter in real life? Yeah, do, do you mind if I take this? Yeah, no, please, please. Yeah, please, I, I, I really think that, um, you know, the idea of misinformation is a real big issue. By we've we've seen quite clearly that when influential individuals, including Trump, um, they're not always populist, but anyway, when individual influ uh, influencers post something or tweet something, people act on it. So when, for example, Trump uh, in inadvertently, you know, encouraged violence at a, I think it was a Black Lives Matter protest, uh, and it resulted in deaths, um, and when also you had the storming of of the Capitol uh, Capitol yeah. Hill, yeah. Um, it is it is hugely problematic and it is it um undermines democracy as we were talking about before um and i think that it is important that we that we in, that we educate people on politics i don't think that people who don't you know who haven't been to university are innately you know less um or sorry more susceptible to being influenced i think we can all be influenced and perhaps i think it's difficult to know when you yourself are being influenced uh, and it's the idea of an echo chamber and i think we can all fall into an echo chamber i think perhaps that by promoting self-thought you, you you do help people to form their own opinions and judgments and not be so easily influenced but it's not always so clear-cut is there any politician yeah. who promotes critical thinking? I don't think so. Yeah. Every I, politician I wants point, to yeah. influence of the course. minds. I mean, of they might voters. claim that they do, but at the end of the day, I don't think they uh, any d does take yeah. um, actual policy, meaningful policy change towards that. Yeah. I mean, sorry to button. I mean, but yeah, no perhaps populist politicians are more likely to try and, like, I inflate their messaging. Yeah. 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 I think if you look at uh, Orban in Hungary, you know, he was elected mm. and he won the majority. And there's a lot of people in Hungary who love him, mm. you know, who love his messaging, anti-immigration, against the EU. But why, why do they like that? I think it's also because they also have that feeling. It's not just him. They're not solely echoing his views. Um, people aren't that stupid. Um, I think that actually... You're saying they're not that stupid? Yes. No, no, I'm not. I, I, I think by... by <laughs> I think the opposite. <laughs> really? Well, no, I, I think that by generalizing people and, and saying that... Um, do, you, do you realize you're the 1% when it comes to intellectual capacity? Uh, well, I mean, well, can we measure really like percentages exactly. of intellectual capacity? I, Obviously, I understand. When it comes to education, but, guys, you're not the average. No, of course, we we people. have we we have like yeah. um really good universities. Yeah, we have but, degrees, but, masters. So, but, but but importantly, everyone still has their own every, people. Well, okay, I was gonna say people know what they want. Actually, that might not always be the case. But um, if people feel they know what they want, that is the point. He tells of them what they want. He, he, he does. But equally, um, he structures like, the messaging to make them think this is what they want. 
I think he does to an extent, but equally, as I said before, you can't create a dominant view just by telling someone. Um, I can't completely persuade you to do or think X. Um, well, in the same way, if you way, oppress the, the opposition way, mm. and you remove them from yeah. the media, which in Hungary and remove he's their done. platform, to remove their, their platform. View. Yes, exactly. I, I I agree, but I I still think that um, there is a genuine sentiment of anti-abortion, anti-immigration, and anti-EU in countries like Poland and, and Hungary. Uh, and, and whether or not um, Orban was there. I think that view would still would still exist. Um, I would I would it would depend on many things. For instance, for abortion, I think it's kind of more complicated than that because obviously there's many many opinions on it, uh, and still like a lot of studies and controversy based on it. But with a, a blunt uh, example of it, it's like the um, LGTB in- inclusiveness in the sense that a vast majority of the Polish people don't believe that you know uh, members of the LGTB community are inferior to them, and somehow the policies are reflecting this. And there's been thousands and thousands of um of uh, of people what millions of people coming out to to uh defend uh those rights uh, recently on protest in, in in poland as well are, are, are those protests populist uh to what it, no obviously like uh that's the thing Cause, that's cause the thing I, I, I would say they are because yeah. populism always isn't always necessarily bad i mean but that's yeah of course a protest is in in essence populist and that's all right it's just a problem is when not when uh, politicians are but i would say that when people come out to express their opinion that is also included within democracy, with the fields uh, protest. Is a, is a, the, the right of organization is one of the rights which is included in almost every constitution uh, in Western democracies. And that is not a populist in the sense because they, they are exercising a right which is promoted by them. I think what would be populist would be to what certain populist uh, parties have done, where they only allow protest in favor of, of so they the only legal protests are in favor of their own regime and they claim that those other protests are, don't really include uh, democratic values and therefore they do it illegally and there's a lot of violence and police uh, yeah, police see, brutality I, as well so I, I wouldn't class those figures as populist um potential maybe I'm um limiting my own, own definition of populism but I, I don't think I think they're authoritarian not populist I, I think that you know the definition of populism is that it is the mass uh, political will of the people and the popular opinion of the people. I don't think it's necessarily. I think again, I don't necessarily think it's authoritarian. Mm, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say those protests are authoritarian either. In that sense, that's why I don't like. That's why obviously there's this this thing of the. I think that protests are populist in the very first meaning of populism. So how democracy was born. Protests were essential in promoting democracy. In the first place, whenever it wasn't recognized, it was a form of civil disobedience at that moment. So it is populist in that sense. That's why it's a bit difficult. But I don't but think then, it is populist any, to the any expression of political will is populist by that by that you know, by the by the first definition of populism. The, mm. the definition of popu- of populism we're speaking about today in 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 terms of. Uh, um, the the neo fascism or at least how I would define it as neo fascism is is not it's clearly that populism is not the one in protests in the sense that you know like they're they're not trying to abolish democracy but they're trying to to express their own concerns for politicians to hear so it's a way of expressing um, their views and it's obviously a conception of democracy in itself the problem is I don't think that uh, and actually whenever there's protest like for instance the KKK in the United States which is kind of anti democratic those are more likely to be forbidden because those are ones who 
clearly attack democracy in the first place. So um, I would say, obviously, there's a huge, there's obviously a really broad term in terms of protest, and I think that's another debate too. But I would, I, I would say that they're populist in the sense that they're democratic, or the the, the first meaning of populism, but not in 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 what populism has converted itself today. So if you look at populist leaders like Orbán or Putin, they still claim to be, you know, uh, democratic leaders and and their countries, you know, are still officially democracies. But in real life, they're not really, yeah. right? Yeah. So why don't these leaders ban democracy altogether and uh, claim the throne? Well, I think, I think there are two main reasons why they don't just ban um, populism. Sorry, ban so, sorry, but ban, ban, ban democracy. One being that if they did, obviously there'll be public outcry and protest. People like to feel that they are in the driving seat. People like to feel that they're in control. And the, and the second reason is that obviously, um, if if they were to openly um, declare themselves authoritarian, then they'll they'll be backlash from abroad. You know, internationally, EU, international EU, trade, ne- yeah, UN, yeah, which is obviously very significant and countries. It's important for countries, particularly poorer countries or less powerful countries, that they appeal to the sentiments and, or, and the align with the views of the UN, for example. Um, in the case of Russia and China recently, it's interesting that they, and, and North Korea, it's fascinating that they are able to shift their weight around and so openly be authoritarian and not face the consequences. And I actually, I, I am concerned that because of the, the weak um, nature of the UN, of the of NATO, and of the EU, and all these other international institutions, that actually countries are going to be more motivated to become openly authoritarian or more authoritarian because they they they, they say there's no international um, what's the word sorry um, um, uh, let's say uh, consequences or? yeah consequences yeah you know uh, China's um, treatment of the Uyghur Muslims for example or repercussions so repercussions yeah, that was, that was yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's also or, how, yeah, or the or the, the invasion and incursion of the Crimean war or sorry, or sorry the, the, the Crimean peninsula or, or China's activities in the South China Sea and specifically the West uh, and Western institutions like the UN not taking a stance um, we are actually legitimizing these leaders and this is where and this is more about fascism but if we accept, you know, your, your your view that populism is is in part fascism, then this is certainly an issue. I I would say also claiming the same thing that um it was it was shown fascism failed in the sense that obviously at the end of the day there was always like within the same country not only from outside but there were like a hu- a lot of uh, people protesting based on it because they claimed democracy they wanted back the power that uh, lawfully corresponded back to the people. So I think that um as a, as a way of learning from fascism, populism nowadays does claim that democracy obviously is admired by every every member uh, mm. in western society so they know that they are more likely more prone to stay in power more as long as they claim or they try to justify their actions as democratic so by keeping democracy they in a sense they stay in power they they're mm. more, they they have better chances at staying in power than than if they don't as well as obviously yeah. i agree with you completely in terms of uh, in international repercussions because obviously the especially germany um mm. the uk france they would obviously exercise a lot of international pressures for as they're doing even the european now um european union now is uh, banning the entrance or the flow of money into uh, Hungary and Poland until they fix their constitutions back to the European standards. So also in, in the sense of like supranational institutions and everything. So I would say definitely that that by by claiming they're democratic, they have a strong rhetoric 
mm-hmm. even to, for instance, delegitimize those supranational or international institutions as well as uh, countries to offer those repercussions mm. to those countries. Is the fact that populist leaders have millions of supporters in many countries evidence that those supporters have authoritarian personalities? Sorry, can you repeat that question? The fact that all these populist leaders like Orban and Putin have millions of supporters, do you think that those supporters have authoritarian personalities? Uh, no, so if these people yeah. had the power to be where those leaders are, do you think they would be the same? Uh, well, I think it's difficult for us to gauge how power and money can corrupt, a, can corrupt an individual. But I, I, I don't think that these people have an authoritarian nature. I think that when people take, for example, uh, I don't know, uh, those in the Trump movement, when they were criticizing, or not criticizing, there were more than that to the point, um, when they were siding with Trump in his you know, accusations against Mexican immigrants, for example, I don't know whether they themselves had a genuine will to go out and, for example, act on that. You know, were they going to go and, I don't know, c- commit a shooting? Obviously, there are, unfortunately, people who really do and they strongly, I suppose, express their political opinion, shall we say, terrorism, for example. Um, and the storming of the Capitol Hill, whilst I wouldn't call it a terrorist attack because it wasn't extremely violent in nature, it was very much uh, bordering. But I, I don't think that people... Um, who support um, populists are authoritarian for one reason, that uh, people I don't think are, are, are really that bad. I think that they could be misled, as we talked about earlier, but but also because I don't think that all populists are, are authoritarian. So by supporting a figure, you're not emanating them completely. Yeah, and I agree. For instance, a, a good uh, comparison with the storming of the US Capitol would be the march uh, in Rome from uh, mm. the Mussolini's movement yeah. encouraged all of the people within uh, the outside uh, towns of Rome to march into Rome as a way of proving uh, this, is a way of legitimizing. You see, all of these people come over to prove my movement because we hold the real majority and democracy doesn't really mean that. So they And they exercise those pressures. That the, the outcome or the desired goal of this type of, uh, you know, movements where they storm into the capital. It's not to promote violence or to uh, show civil disobedience, but to pressure, um, let's say, the, the, the governments or the institutions, uh, so politicians, to, 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 to take the message, to, uh, to change their policy based on this. And to a certain extent, it does get to a point where sometimes it's just even that those, those uh, like, intimidate those um, uh, congressmen and congresswomen into just granting the victory to Trump or to giving their support because they're scared. And I, I believe that there were some injured uh, Congress. Uh, there was an injured congresswoman, right, in the in the U.S. Uh, Capitol. Yeah, um, storming. I think also importantly, following on from that, I think it's it's people believe they are doing right. Yeah, so they're, they're pe- not authoritarian. Pe- exactly, pe- people don't go out and do something thinking right. This is actively evil. They do it because they think they are, for whatever reason. Because they were influenced. Because they're influenced, because they have their own, everyone has their own view. We're very selfish, individualistic. So, yeah. You know, it's it's kind of the same thing. Why would uh, all of those unions enter into strikes and even fights in the early 20th century, the Mm. end of the 19th century? Because they believed that they were were not being represented. And in in the vast majority of cases, it was countries which had authoritarian regimes, like kings, uh, monarchies, you know. And uh, to a certain extent, at that moment, uh, they were they were fighting for that. They were, they were, 
kind of claiming, oh, we want democracy, we want to be able to choose and to represent, uh, our, for our interests to be represented. And I think nowadays, even those citizens in the storming of the US Capitol thought they were doing that. They, they uh, as you see, that's why I believe populism is so dangerous, because in the United States, populism made it look like democracy was a dictatorship. So they, they thought that they were actually invoking this sense of democracy by finishing or attacking uh, delegitimizing this democracy, which was a dictatorship. In fact, that's what they, that, that's what they, their minds would probably uh, depict, because obviously, even to a certain extent, um, Donald Trump, uh, I think he then like backed off in Twitter saying, I don't approve of He this. was forced. He was forced off. to, because obviously this was just uh, taking power by, f by force. It was just completely against democratic values. And in, in the sense, this was populism, what caused it. Even, even the populist leaders saw that his message got too far. As, that's why it's so dangerous when not controlled and not even controlled. I believe that uh, the, basically the only way to control it is to, uh, through education, to not, not obviously say populism is bad, it, but to encourage critical thinking. So saying, I know politics might not be, especially in high school, might not be the most interesting thing that you might have. You might want to become a scientist and you have more things to think about and probably more productive for society than politicians do. But at the same time, you, you must encourage them to at least research on it, like to be interested, to follow, to open that critical thinking. And honestly, one of the things that I really like about the UK in general is that their universities, their university system is uh, one that is highly desirable for democracy. I be, um, whereas in, in Spain, for, for, especially for politics, you learn by just studying uh, the, the syllabus. You know, there's books and you have to read them. You have an exam to prove to see whether you've read it or not or whether you understood it. While in the UK, they kind of open the door. They say, okay, you must do your own research. We can't give you kind of a reading list of like, let's say the basic concepts of like for you to understand a certain concept. And then for your essays, you can even do your own research, find your own, academics that, that, that show a point that you prove so and then you learn how to defend it by writing essays based on it instead of exams. So I would say that like systems like the UK one in terms of higher education and this is where I come to because obviously you might say well would you say that the UK is free from populism and well, I yeah, would but, not but, agree. But also that there's always room for improvement in, in the education no, system. Uh, yeah. Definitely I'm not going to say it's like perfect, perfect but I'm saying it's one of the best ones in the world and one of the reasons why I wanted to come here in the first place but uh, from Spain. So the thing is that uh, obviously this type of system should be definitely encouraged not only in higher education because there's many people that don't want to do higher education and it's understandable they, they have other career um, let's say Desires, aspirations, exactly. So that should be encouraged in primary education. This type of this type of critical thinking. Uh, I would say that honestly, what helped me to think outside the box was the UK system, and I, I clearly thank this to University of Essex because I, I, when I came there and I saw how education worked, I was I was I was surprised, but I, uh, it was a pleasant surprise, you know, in that sense. So I would say that all, I think all all countries should at least try to take this approach in terms of higher, definitely higher education and uh, most importantly, like primary education. I think, so something to add to that though, I mean, I, I think also, I think that people uh, form their own political opinions through exposure, but you also learn to critically think through exposure, but it needs to be, I suppose, broadly equal exposure to different views. So to, uh, my my mum is a socialist, uh, a Marxist, not, not, a, not, a, not a socialist. The, the, the most uh, socialist yeah. term. Yeah, <laughs> I know, yeah. Um, in a sense of, you know, once wants a communes in, in equality. My stepfather is a UKIPper and a Brexiteer on grounds of immigration. My grandfather uh, and grandmother are conservative Brexiteers on grounds of sovereignty and, and the economy. And then my, my dad and stepmom 
are are both sort of liberal remain um you know the, the one's a teacher and one's a an engineer um so and by that that's bizarre dichotomy of so different opinions um i think I, in my case and I, I know it's anecdotal but i've almost come out in the center uh but it did make me think and um i think actually in terms of schooling we, like you say yeah i think that the promotion of, of political thought from a young age is very important i just think that at the moment there aren't many i suppose guidelines as to how is best to do it to produce the best or most i don't know critically thinking individual um i did philosophy a level and i found that i didn't draw any conclusions but i found that really interesting in in being in helping me to be able to explore a concept and not just not just philosophical but you can apply that thinking strategy to, to anything to a certain extent i have to agree with that um i think one of uh, I, i no one would disagree with me when i say that one of the biggest debates that every citizen in the world or at least in democratic systems have in politics is the christmas dinner with their families <laughs> course, I, yeah. I, i don't think yep. no one would disagree with that so i would say that even within my own experiences and that's going back to kind of the populism Um, I my family is really diverse as well, from from um, left wing populism to right wing populism and everything in between. So I would say that in in many debates, especially Christmas or whenever you know family encounters, uh, I would say that the most dangerous are the populist ones because in while well, I would say that w within liberal um, thinkers or like centrist thinkers you, or even even. I uh, would say left wing and right wing, but not populist. Whenever you speak with them, you speak about facts, you, and they believe those facts. They're like, well, based on those facts, my my opinion is that it should be this, this, and this. Whereas when I debate with um, members in my family uh, who are populist, uh, both in the left side or in the right side, um, they always delegitimize all the facts. Because whenever I say, "How? What do you think about this?" and then the first the first thing they always say is, "Where did you get this information from?" I'm like, "Well, this newspaper." And they're like, "Yeah, that newspaper is owned by Soros. That's a lie, clearly." Uh, so obviously, the, you cannot. Re it's it's unhealthy for democracy to have this type of debates where you don't believe the other person, the counter. You always you always have to. It always comes back to what sources of information are legitimate and which ones are not. Um. So, f following on from what you're saying about like the the storming of, of Capitol Hill, and do pop and I like I don't know how how populists or sorry the, the followers of populists express their opinions. Um, I think that um, there there is I know I keep saying this there there is a, there is an issue, and in some circumstances, what they're advocating is correct, and we can't disregard at all as as these these bad notions um, of and this stigma. So when when talking about do they actually believe they're right, I think they do believe they're right, and they, they feel justified in in for example storming the the capital, which is an abhorrent action. But the reasons why they did it are legitimate in some in some ways. Um, in what ways? <laughs> in in what ways? Well, I think when when people um, look at their states of, of affairs, their economic state of affairs, where they're living, and and they they look around them we see that they're always there's always a bigger fish there's always someone doing better than them right does that really legitimize them to take well, power yeah, yes. or to I, like just attack <laughs> no 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 it, it legitimizes them to uh, express their own political opinion mm, now right. I, I, i i think that there's obviously a varying degree as to how much you should be able to do this uh, terrorism is expressing your own political opinion but it is also um against the human right against human rights and um, and undemocratic but um when when people um degradate populists as as these um i suppose dangerous 
notions. They're actually disregarding some some core issues. So take, for example, um, our priorities. Our priorities, the, the, the three of us, have very different uh, priorities to other people. Today, we were thinking about coming to central London uh, and sitting in uh, an office block and discussing this. We have the liberty to discuss it for a start. Others in the rest of the UK and all around the world will have very different priorities. They'll be um, providing food on the table. They'll be getting or finding work or going to work. And many times this, this, this work differs from what we do, whereas uh, as students living in, in a city, the, it may be like manual labour or something like that. And take, for example, the industrialists in America, who many of them lost their jobs and in this country as well because of the outsourcing of production to countries like China. Now, yes, that helps us as the consumer. It benefits the middle classes. It benefits um, capitalism because, you know, there are higher economies of scale. And it's obviously good for trade. It leaves a significant number of people um, disaffected and in, in a lot of financial trouble. Now, if for, take, for example, deindustrialization, if we provided a solution for them to get into different fields of work, then they wouldn't have such a grievance. But because liberal democracy has failed to do that, um, has failed to get them into tertiary education or the tertiary sector, they therefore have a very, very good reason and a justified reason to come out and express their dissatisfaction. Now, I'm not saying they should do this in, as I said, violent means, but I'm, what I'm trying to get across is we shouldn't be surprised why populism um, has done so well. And as, and, and as Farage said, you know, uh, on the topic populism the funny thing is it's very popular and there is a good reason why that is the case i i agree with you completely they within even the pretext of democracy they have the right to go out and complain and protest and it's encouraged not only permitted but encouraged i would just say though that w populist parties kind of use that into their advantage because obviously this just the more protests there are and especially in in terms with it like strong cleavages just means the higher dissatisfaction there is with every party because if they protest it's because no matter what party you vote for they, they don't see that meaningful change they but, want but in their all, lives. All, all parties form like political cleavages. Uh, all, all parties form in political cleavages. I'm just saying that then obviously like it's a bit dangerous when populists see that as an advantage. They see, okay, so there's a huge dissatisfaction based on inequality, for instance, mm. and they use that in an advantage to, to just push their own agenda. And they just find a way, normally through misleading facts, that their agenda is the best way to tackle that cleavage. So obviously that is, and that is a big problem because uh, obviously those uh, Protestants that you said are really dissatisfied and they're really looking for something different. So whenever a really strong party with like, I would say, honestly, with empty content comes out and just uses this beautiful rhetoric to approach them and to tell them to make them vote for them, then that is kind of taking advantage of democracy in itself. And uh, it just follows my argument within that it, 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 it endangers democracy in the first place. Maybe those voters, they clearly want something. And uh, perhaps, you know, um, it would get better with a liberal party. But with those parties, uh, or a mainstream party, with those parties, it would just uh, be completely the opposite. You know, they might end up having a lot of outcomes which don't relate at all with their desired outcome, but they voted for them. And now it gets to a point where once they've realized their mistake, because they see that they're not uh, living better, and that shows the huge dissatisfaction, for instance, in, in Poland with Duda, huge dissatisfaction, that, that they, it's more difficult now to overthrow them in, through electoral means, because they've changed democracy so much that they require a, a lot of different requirements to do so. But if we're saying that, um, you know, 
populism is bad, then we must find a solution to it. And I think that actually the solution is for traditional liberal democracies to listen to populists, to, to listen to the grievances rather than dismissing them. And um, if it is as bad as you say, which I think in some cases it is, right, then we should um, definitely listen to them and enact things rather than just sitting sitting back and um, say, well, it's fine, you know. Um, I completely agree with you. The problem is that those liberal democracies don't really, um, those liberal parties, sorry, don't really listen to populists so, and try so, to change so surely, their own content. So surely if they don't listen to them... They just become then, populists then, themselves, through the rhetoric at least. So they, they, mm. they, kind of, uh, they kind of use the same techniques that populists do. So even though they might not believe that there should be change, they might just, as, 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 as uh, Five Star Movement was, they claimed they were uh, just as uh, Liga Nord, the, the salvation for Italy. And then when they got voted, they just kept the same type of policies that but the, the you know the the socialist party or the conservative party would have done there social democrats so so obviously that could that it just shows how bad populism is in that sense because parties will just use empty rhetoric that the populists do to compete so that they show they're better than the others and then they get to power they do whatever they want so it's kind of it's kind of one of the i would say side effects of populism in society it just radicalizes every party into using a populist rhetoric for better or for worse obviously depends on the argument but so you have one group of people that is worried about, you know, the masses leaning to populism, nationalism, xenophobia, and then you have other group of people who is worried about the rise of elites, right? If you look at the current geopolitical environment, do you think we're leaning more towards sort of democracy and representation by politicians, or do you think we're leaning more towards um, liberalism, referendums, direct elections. I think I think we're moving more towards the notion of direct democracy. I think that the EU referendum for example is a perfect example and this Scotland uh, Scottish referendum are both brilliant examples of direct democracy and people being asked to make a decision. I think people um are, are very much open to being asked. People want to have their own say and by having referendums that's very significant. Regarding Brexit, um did people make the right decision? Well, sorry, that's up to the, up to the debate. Experts debate that to this day. Are people happy with Brexit? I don't know. There are many people who now have seen how the EU has treated uh, us during negotiations and have said, well, actually, I don't really want to be about the EU and vice versa. People say, actually, it's been a complete mess. I wish I didn't vote um, leave. I've got some, some stats on this uh, that I, I found earlier. So uh, regarding support for Brexit, uh, in hindsight, um, this was the data was between February and May 2020. On average, 42% said it was correct and they that they would, in hindsight, vote leave again, and 45% said it was wrong. So quite still quite split down the middle, and the rest were undecided. And by October, though, um, and to put this into the context, by October uh, it was um, coming up to the date where the tariffs would be implemented. I think with the backstop in, in Northern Ireland. The figures were 39% um, said Brexit was right and 49% said it was wrong. So perhaps there's a trend. It's still inconclusive, the data. There are lots of varying things out there. So perhaps people, the public sentiment in the UK has shifted more towards uh, anti-Brexit. Anti but the majority of people still believe we shouldn't rejoin. You know, they, they, they are... Um, not content, but they they think we should remain in the current situation. We you know we they say we can't go back. So um, linking that back to the argument here, um, I think people can acknowledge that they're wrong, and perhaps by acknowledging that in the future they'll make a different decision. We are not so um, ideologically sort of channeled. We don't all live in an, in an echo chamber. I think what I'm trying to get across is that we um, 
we we are not so influenced as perhaps some political pundits say by figures such as Trump or Farage, and we do actually have our own uh, our own self thought. And I think that's that's a that's positive for democracy. Democracy is all about self thought, and in that sense, uh, populism is is integral to that. Um, well, the problem is, as you well said, that if whenever citizens, and I include myself in it, realize they've committed a mistake, whether it's too late to make a change, that's that's the True. like uh, the the main. Uh, concern I have with populism, and as well going back to your argument, uh, your question, where you said, uh, "How are we as a as a society leading, or where are we leading uh, to?" I would say definitely that it depends on which part of the world. Within Europe, I think we're leading to more authoritarian sovereignty-like states, and um, obviously that's what I'm kind of basing my dissertation on. Is just that uh, the race of populism, especially the race of uh, right-wing populism, is just causing more Euroscepticism, even in the left-wing populisms affecting all of those parties. So it's just affecting in the sense that uh, they see that as the European Union is one of the biggest examples of checks and balances within democracies, where they make sure that even though constitutions can be changed, uh, there's always this supranational entity that protects the rights of minorities. I, I, I would disagree that the EU is a check and balance. In fact, I think it, it, in many ways is actually it's. It is not democratic. Is what well, so there's, a, there's always this this, this yeah. debate about it. But in, in the sense, like, for instance, right now, like uh, within the European Union, even in, in its measures, uh, for instance, uh, in order for climate change to, to stop, uh, the, the, all of all countries democratically uh, gave away or delegated the power of controlling the climate change policies to the European Union. And even now, uh, an, an example of this is in Madrid. Um, there, there was a right-wing um, politician who came out, Almeida. He's a mayor of, of Madrid and wanted to take away center of Madrid, Madrid Central, which means that you cannot enter with a car inside. So he wanted to ch- to take it away because obviously a lot of their voters wanted him to do that in Madrid. But at the same time, it was affecting obviously the decisions of the European Union, the European Union banned it. But at the same time, those countries delegated that power to the European but, Union, but so I, it was democratic I like, too. I feel like that in, in part that that delegation of power, of, sovereign, of sovereignty, the giving up of sovereignty to the EU, was in part coerced. You know, um, there have been referendums or, um, you know, the, the, the power of Britain's veto in the Lisbon Treaty was overturned. They, they quite literally changed the rules and and discluded Britain's but vote. this happens within democracies as well. It, it, I, I would agree with does, you, that is, right, that is authoritarian yeah. in that way. But regardless of that, we're drifting away from the main debate. I'm just saying that should it be true that it's, it's, it does act as check and balances in, in many ways, I do agree it does. Right now, like Poland, for instance, uh, attacking the European Union by saying we are not allowed to make those changes which to a certain extent are really authoritarian. But we are not allowed to do it because of the European Union. That's their rhetoric. So they're, they're claiming there's, there's a growing Euroscepticism saying like we are not allowed to implement, at least in my perspective in Hungary and Poland, the tyranny of the majority because the European Union is there. So the European Union is our enemy. And then through their rhetoric, they're trying to get everyone in those countries against the European Union. But, but I think the, um, the notion of um, these countries having an issue with with the EU is justified. You know, the, the idea of sovereignty, does it exist at the national level or the supranational level? Also, the national level. If we're saying that democracy is the sovereignty, it's it's the people, it's the people's sovereignty of that country, not a collection of countries, of that country, right? So for the, so take the example, the, the, the Madrid city centre, right? If the people in that area wanted that, or the national government advocated that, then surely that should happen. That that should not be in the hands of a of international agency. But that's the thing: it's different perspectives or different ways of seeing the European Union. In my opinion, when we talk about European at the supranational level, European democracy or politics, we're not speaking about union of parties 
that, uh, you know, of, of different countries, of member states that have their own democracies. I see it as the democracy of the European people, which I identify myself with more than, more than Spanish, for instance, European. But, it, but it, if populist figures express that the majority of a country wants to leave that European people's union... Well, then, democracy then should, was respected, uh, yeah, Britain I, I, left. I agree. I agree. Yeah, so, but, so it's but part but of the, the democratic those, 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 balances. That's true. But those populist movements should, should in, in those countries, you know, there's an independence movement in Italy and in Greece. You know, you saw what happened with the Eurozone crisis. Yeah, um, yeah definitely. No, know. no, no. I, I agree to, to that extent. But uh, I'm saying that, that within every de democracy, and well, separately from certain countries like with the Catalonian incident or maybe mm. Scotland mm. or, or uh, Bayern in, in Germany. I would say that in the vast majority of cases within democracy, if they vote for it, they can leave. And the European Union completely provided for countries to leave the European Union if they wanted to. And um, at the same point, those same citizens in Madrid who then voted or in favor of taking the center of Madrid away, well, the regulations, they, in the first place, Madrid was one of the countries who voted the most in terms of uh, within the European Union. No, there wasn't mm. really a referendum. But it was kind of done. But if the political... But they voted the for those change. parties that put them in, in yeah, power. Yeah, but, but, but the, the political um, and, okay, populist what they were, of, of, the, of the people change and therefore, you know... And, and like I say, a new movement comes along. A new populist movement will replace one. They, they one. change. And if they want to do so, they, all of these parties, even Vox now is trying to bring out this Spexit movement. Mm. So it's part of democracy, you know, to a certain extent, uh, regardless of what I think about it. It's part of democracy. If there's a high demand within Spain for this to happen, it will come out in the elections and it will reflect the policy changes, which is part of liberal democracy's problem is when populists use this in their advantage. So going back to the question you asked, how do I see uh, populism affecting our general direction? It's just uh, even in Europe, it's kind of more evident because of the supranational entity that's the European Union. But even in the United States, countries are just reforcing their sovereignty and becoming more authoritarian in a trend in the sense that they get into power because populist parties have a really strong impact, charismatic impact in the population and once they're in power they just attempt to to change those rules to make it more prone or more likely for them to stay in power but my, my final take on that would still be that i think the the notion of sovereignty um is going to become more important and direct democracy will like we say you know increase in europe but i th i think that's a good thing and I think that's that's where we differ. Uh, personally, I would say that direct democracy could work as well. It's a form of of, the, of uh, where yeah, but citizens but, well, don't vote for populists. Surely, direct, you know? direct democracy is, is populist. Sorry? Well, surely in some aspects, direct democracy is populist. Well, to a certain extent, it depends on how direct democracy works. Because in Switzerland, for instance, even though there is kind of a direct democracy, it's a semi, because there's still a government. And the government chooses what questions to ask the people. So, But now with, with, the, with the new technological advancements, who knows? You know, at the beginning, democracy in Athens was only a small uh, circle, like a theater, where it would be filled with the most influential people, because not, not everyone could fit. And honestly, I don't think that they wanted everyone to be there either. But nowadays, like with with the new technological advancements, I think it's it's quite possible that in some years from now, uh, I'm, I'm not gonna make an, an estimate. You know, in some years from now, uh, there might be a way of just making like a whole platform where there's no government needed. Sounds a bit anarchist, and mm. I'm, I'm saying that obviously it depends on how it's done. Then I would agree or not, obviously. But I'm saying that it's a possibility. So. Obviously, then with direct democracy, the problem comes like, should there be a constitution or not? And then if, if the constitution should happen, who's going to decide it? So obviously, there's a lot of, of concepts of variables in, in play here. 
But I would say, honestly, that uh, direct democracy could be another way of, of implementing democracy being carried out. The thing is that populists don't want direct democracy. And it kind of clashes with their own uh, definition of what they want. They want the majority to decide. But I guess that if you ask any leader like Orban, Putin, or um, Duda, or Maduro, if there was a way to put uh, direct democracy in their countries, they would probably say no. They probably say there would be some sort of fraud or, you know, because they want to remain in power. And that's the problem with populists, their intentions. Last topic I wanted to touch upon is COVID. Um, how would you say that populists versus non-populists handled COVID and which approach was better? Yeah, I think, um, I don't know whether this is uh, simply correlation or it is actually causation. I, I was reading quite a few articles which were saying that we've seen that populists haven't done well out of COVID. Um, the notable example, obviously, being the states. Trump handling of the COVID crisis was pretty atrocious. Not as bad as some make out, but it was, it was bad. Um, America, as a, such a wealthy country, um, did extremely poorly from COVID. Now, I think part of that was actually not Trump. It was actually just the, the systems in place in, in America, the healthcare system, for example, um, And uh, although you're right, Trump does support some version of private healthcare, that wasn't all his making, the, the mess there. But certainly it does seem that uh, populist figures have, have come off badly. Uh, we also saw in, in Europe more traditional parties like uh, uh, the CDU and Merkel or, or in France um, where a, a steady pair of hands has seemed to have worked. Uh, but however, you know, coming against this, you know, in China, Xi Jinping, um, he is quite clearly a populist leader. Uh, I, th I think we could sort of assert that. Or maybe, or maybe, maybe, well, maybe he's more. Maybe he's, it's or, 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 a populist leader in a dictatorship. Yes, he, he is. But, he's, kind of but he's, he's populist in the sense that he wants to present a, a popular appeal. Although I guess all politicians do. But anyway, um, they obviously... The handling in China was actually fairly good. Now, we don't have all the stats. Uh, I do wonder whether there was some cover-up there. Um, but it's six of one and half a dozen the other. Um, so, yeah. Um, I would say, honestly, like, it's rather early to to actually know how populist parties did in, in comparison with, um, with non-populist, well, populist countries, with non-populist countries, because uh, it's still going on to a certain extent. And I think it's really early to start drawing comparisons because there's no data. But I would say that the, one of the main things that could be said about this is that uh, populist leaders are less reluctant to cooperate internationally than others. So I guess that liberal democracy or liberal governments or centrist mainstream, however you want to call them, were more likely, and they did, to negotiate with other countries in order to achieve the best goal for them. So see how they can actually overcome those collective action problems that Olsen spoke about and kind of cooperate together. And the European Union was a really good example of this. Uh, after some, some at the beginning, they kind of uh, each to its own approach, each country followed, but then they, they well, joined the, together to work as, the, as a European union. The European Union's approach can be seen as, as actually quite slow and poor in terms of economic relief. Um, m many would say that actually other countries did, did better. And, and to, uh, to a certain extent, yeah. you can see like yeah. populist um, uh, governments kind of left away their populist approach to kind of join the European Union, Poland and Hungary, knowing that they themselves uh, in this confrontation could not provide for the vaccines. They, had, they kind of had to give some concessions away to the European Union and say, okay, um, I'm going to need your help actually here. So I would say that even, even um, populist leaders know that for certain crises, their authoritarian... Um, autocratic, isolationist approach is not really 
um, the best one to deal with, with because obviously cooperation always wins at the end of the day. So um, I would say, I would say obviously that as I said, I, I wouldn't put my hand on fire for any of the things, um, especially about COVID, because it's quite recent now um, to actually speak about it, to have any you know um, data. But I would say that definitely cooperation had a lot to do with it, and that overall there's a height, a really big tendency for populist governments to not cooperate internationally as much as yeah. mainstream. Do. I think that's a fair assessment. I do think, though, that it, what it comes down to is are populist governments effective? And I think in some cases they are, but in many cases they're not. And I think it's difficult to judge whether they are or aren't effective. Um, you know, in, in the UK, for example, some, some view Boris Johnson as populist. I don't really think he is. Um, but I think some of his tendencies are. The, the, the charisma, which we distinguished earlier, we, we talked about that, you know, it's, it's not clear-cut who and who isn't a populist. But assuming he were, then it's not just him making the, the moves, it's also the party as a whole. Uh, and the, the conservatives in the UK um, are obviously conservative, <laughs> with the small c. And I think in the grand scheme of things, we could have handled it better, but it, it wasn't too, too bad. But, but going back to the States, um, was it all Trump's doing that it, that it went so wrong? Possibly. And, and, and maybe the reason why populists did, did worse from COVID and handled it worse is because if we accept the notion that populists are saying, oh, you know, we are, we are the solution and not listening to other solutions or to other individuals, perhaps that explains it. But I think, as you say, um, we're not, it's not clear at the moment. So, yeah. even, even Donald Trump had to back up with COVID because yeah. uh, the vast majority of, of, the, of his followers are anti-vaxxers. And he had a huge problem when he was saying, no, we're never going to force anyone to vaccinate. And then when they saw that the cases were getting bad, there was even some misinformation that even Donald Trump kind of portrayed saying to drink bleach instead of vaccinate or... Uh, yeah, clara uh, hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, or, or, or yeah. you know, things like this. So I, I even uh, to a certain extent, Donald Trump had to say, okay, I'm taking this too far. And if I want for... To, to stop this, I'm going to have to change my approach. To, to a certain extent, they see that... Uh, they, they believe that that is popular among their voters, but at some point they're like, we have to change those things. So I, I would even say that maybe he did it in the first place to unify all anti-vaxxers within their votes because it's more, let's say, popular among uh, the group of people that end up voting for Donald Trump. But at the same time, then they saw it was a big problem because then people would not want to vaccinate and he would have to find other solutions. And I'm sure he was trying to find other um, schools of thought within medicine of how to prevent uh, COVID. But at the end of the day, as I said, the vast majority of populist uh, governments or leaders actually just gave away their, their beliefs and started cooperating internationally, give away concessions in order to cooperate because it clearly gives a better uh, outcome at the end of the day, a better payoff. So, yeah, I would, I would say so. That would be my argument. Cool. Well said. Um, well, thank you both for coming. I think this episode was very educational for me and I hope for the audience as well. And yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Lucy. Thank you for listening to this discussion. If you enjoyed it, make sure to follow the podcast to hear about new episodes. You can also find me on Instagram or Twitter under Think with Lucy. Let's highlight the gray area that is often overlooked. Let's show nuance. Let's think.